take together this bread and then take together this cup. So let's take a moment of silence now as we come to the table this morning. Open to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, if you pick up a Bible from the back table, you'll find Revelation 10 beginning on page 1033. Now, Tom mentioned there in corporate prayer, why would we preach through Ezekiel? And his answer is right, because we have a high view of the Bible. The reason why we preached through Ezekiel recently is because about 14 years ago, I plotted this plan and said, let's preach through the entire Bible. When I looked at certain books, I thought, that one can wait. <laughs> so I put off Ezekiel and I put off Zechariah, and that's why we recently went through those books. Another book I put off was Revelation. That's why nearly 14 years into this plan, we're just now getting to this book. And you'll see on the sermon card coming up, Song of Solomon is going to be mixed in because I thought, no need to rush that one either. But this morning, we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Again, if you picked up the Bible from the back table, page 1033. And one more time, would you mind standing so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a ro lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call, sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Would you remain standing as we pray one more time? Father, help us now as we bow before your word. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Do all that you desire to, good, to do for our good and for Christ's honor. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. Now, no doubt, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you resonate with that. You understand that. You understand the, the calling that falls on you. Perhaps you've, you've walked through some difficult times and made difficult decisions, and your only motivation for those decisions was, I think this is what obedience to Christ requires. We personally, in this congregation, know individuals who have up and left their homes, left family, uh, all, even, even gone on the other side of the earth, just to obey the command of Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We know others, we, we heard it even, even last Sunday night, as we spent our time sharing prayer requests and praises, people who have made the decision to bring uh, needy children into their home and take them as their own, to bring the elderly into their home and care for them for no other reason than that they are followers of Jesus Christ. We know others who have given away what could have been a life of comfort and ease to walk down a road of pain and suffering because they believe this is what Christ commanded them. Simply put, Jesus Christ has not called us to live an easy life, has He? He's not called us to walk down the simplest path. He's not called us to go a direction uh, that will require the world to applaud us at every step. He's required us, rather, and His words take up our cross, an instrument of death, and follow Him. And though you individually may not be called to do one of those things I've mentioned, one of the things I've illustrated to show this, uh, bringing an elderly person to your home, or picking up and going to the other side of the earth, or, or these kinds of things, maybe you've not done that specifically, but there is a call that falls on everyone in this room who professes faith in Christ. The Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded them. That task falls on us. That charge falls to us. And it's a hard task, isn't it? It's a hard charge to go into a world that is against Jesus Christ and tell them, you're under the judgment of God. But there's good news. You have to turn from your sin. And place your faith in Him. And then teach them to obey everything. Teach them to obey what Christ commands about the permanency of marriage. To, to teach them to obey the command of, of purity in our lives. To teach them the, the command uh, to abstain from our useful lusts, not to gossip, and on and on and on. These things are hard, aren't they? The difficult task that falls to all of us. And so what we need as believers is we need times in our lives where we're reminded of this calling, where we're exhorted in it, encouraged to it, and comforted in it. And I think one place we can find ourselves being comforted and challenged and encouraged and exhorted to obedience in our call to fulfill the Great Commission is Revelation 10. Now the reason I say that is because as odd as Revelation 10 might seem to you as we read it right then, this mighty angel, little scroll, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, all of these odd, <coughs> excuse me, odd elements, as odd as it may seem to you, I think Revelation 10 is best understood as something like this. 
I think it's the recommissioning of John to be the Lord's faithful witness. Now I say recommissioning, because you'll remember back in chapter 1, the Lord called him to be his faithful witness, to speak to his churches. By the time you get to chapter 10, though, it seems the Lord's doing it again. Now I say that for a couple of reasons. One, if you read chapter 10, it reads a lot like other commissioning texts. If you read the text where Ezekiel was commissioned to be the Lord's prophet, or Isaiah was commissioned to be the Lord's prophet, it reads a lot like Revelation 10. Also, and this is a little more clear, the last verse of the chapter, the Lord basically tells him, I'm calling you to prophesy again. Right? Verse 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy about, that word could be translated against there, I think it probably is better translated against. And I was told you must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So this is not John's first call. He's already been told to prophesy, to tell the churches what he's seeing. But here he's being recommissioned, if you will. The Lord is telling him, you must again prophesy. Now, because then what we get in this chapter is a recommissioning of John to be a faithful witness in this world and to tell the world what Christ has shown him, it sounds very much like the commission that falls to all of us, right? We too have been commissioned to go into all the world and tell his people and those who are not his people what Christ commands. So in this sense, what we see in this text that should be encouraging to John and instructive to John should be encouraging and instructive to us as well. And that's how I want to approach the chapter. But I do want to acknowledge this morning that a number of you in this room probably haven't been here for this series. Maybe some of you have been listening to messages online and, and you feel called up. And if not, you can go do that. But let me just give you a brief rundown of what's going on in the book of Revelation. This will also serve a purpose for those of us who have been here every week. There are some themes we're going to see in Revelation 10 that we've seen before. So let's just turn back in your Bibles. We'll just do a quick overview of the first nine chapters of the book. Maybe this will help all of us kind of get our bearings so that we can look at chapter 10. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I do want to read chapter 1, verse 1, just to orient us. This tells us what the entire book is. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read this uh, statement, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Now, this, this helps us in our text this morning, so just note this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So you have a way this unfolds, don't you? That the Father, God, gives this revelation to Jesus, who we're told gives it to John, but not directly to John, gives it to an angel so that the angel then can give it to John, and then John can testify to these things to the churches. And that's what we find happening in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3 then, and John sees a vision of, of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, uh, John receives a revelation of seven letters to the churches. So he sends out these letters to this church, to that church, to that church, and so on, to the seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, John's all of a sudden given this vision of heaven, this majestic scene where, where, where God the Father, the one, is seated on the throne and he is holding in his hand a scroll. And I argued there that that scroll, I think, represented all of God's promises and purposes and plans of judgment and salvation. 
and, and it's a majestic scene so that in chapter 4, you know no one would dare ever even try to approach that God. He's so unapproachable, so holy, so majestic. And yet there's a problem. If this scroll isn't opened, has seven seals on it, if these seven seals aren't broken and this scroll's not open, then God's work of judgment and salvation is just not going to happen. It's not going to be enacted. So all of a sudden you have this strong angel. I'll reference him uh, here because we'll see him again. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel. Chapter 5, verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. John's right to weep here. All of God's promises, all of His plans, all of His purposes of judgment and salvation, none of them are coming apart. None of them are coming, coming to be. All, none of them is going to be enacted. So those who have died and are in the graves are going to stay there. Everyone who, who, who lived their lives and, and were martyred in obedience to Christ, there's nothing that awaits them. Unless the scroll's open. She begins to weep until finally someone says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And he turns, and when he turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, what he sees is one standing as a lamb who had been slain. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is able to open the scroll, to bring about all of the promises and purposes and plans of God's judgment and salvation because He has made them certain by His life and His death and His resurrection. So He takes the scroll and He opens it. In chapter 6, we read that as He opens each of the seven seals, it's revealing to us what God is doing, His work of judgment in this time. We said in chapter 6, one of the things that, that this weird scene show, showed is as He broke the first four seals, you had these multiple colored horses and riders and all of this. And what Jesus was showing us through that was that in this age, between the time when Christ ascended and when He's going to come again, in this age, in this entire time, between His two comings, it's going to be a time filled with wars, nations or wars against nations. Uh, there's going to be civil unrest and bloodshed. There will be famine. There will be pestilence. There will be disease. There's going to be death. There will be people martyred. And yet, according to chapter 7, throughout all of these tragedies of living in this sin-cursed world, His people have been sealed. Chapter 7 says He placed a seal. He marked us out. So that if we our faith is in Jesus Christ, we've been marked out as those who will be preserved. Nothing will allow us to make shipwreck of our faith. We'll be held on to by Jesus Christ, no matter what comes to us, no matter what tragedy we face, no matter, no matter what hardship, no matter what difficulty, no matter even if death itself gets us, we will be preserved. We've been marked out to be protected. Then in chapters 8 and 9... We saw then the blowing of the seven trumpets. The seven seals in chapter 6 are the six seals and the seventh seal at the beginning of chapter 8. In chapters 8 and 9, we see the first six trumpets and, and they're blowing out and it's showing seemingly the same things. That this age will be filled with war and famine and bloodshed and civil unrest and disease and pestilence and death. And yet instead of being now from the perspective of the believer being preserved through this time, it's looking at with respect to the unbeliever that these things are God showing His judgment in this age. In this age, as unbelievers suffer all the tragedies of life, it's God saying, this is a foretaste of judgment. 
as unbelievers are given over to their sins so that they dive headlong into sin and, and find them reaping in their own sin the penalty for their error, Jesus is saying, that's your judgment. Yes, there's more to come, but that's a foreshadowing of it. And He's doing this so that they might look around and see God's judgment on them and come to repentance. The problem is, no one does come to repentance on the basis of that alone. They need the gospel, don't they? Which may very well then be why when we come to chapter 10, the Lord is commissioning John again to go and prophesy. Apart from the preaching of God's Word, apart from the revelation that He has given to us, there is no hope for anybody. So that then brings us to chapter 10, a recommissioning of John to continue to tell to the churches, to spread the word of this vision he is receiving. And as I said, because it sounds very much like a commission we have, I think what John is instructed here, what we are taught here, can be applied directly to us. Therefore, I just want to mention a few things this morning that I think apply to us as messengers, as faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ in this world, some instructions, some points, some truths we need to know. The first one is this. We need to understand that all truths have not been disclosed to us. We need to understand that all truths haven't been disclosed to us. Now we see that in the first four verses. And I'll show you why I think this is the point of the first four verses. The first four verses are, are a bit odd. First, John says he sees this mighty angel. Listen to verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel. I think he says another because you'll remember back in 5.2 where I stopped and made reference there. Remember that strong angel calling into all the worth? Who's worthy to open the scrolls? You've got to be strong if your voice is going to be such that you can cry out and the whole earth hear it. That's why he's a strong angel. Better than my voice, for example, which I feel fading this morning. Here, though, another, like the one before, but another mighty angel comes down from heaven. And listen to how he's described. Wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillar of fire. That's a very majestic scene, isn't it? In fact, it's so majestic that a number of commentators have suggested this angel, this person referenced here as a, another mighty angel, is none less than Jesus Christ himself. Now, the reason they say that is because when you look through the Bible, you don't see anyone other than God wrapped in a cloud. And here now is an angel being described as wrapped in a cloud. It, the, the rainbow, do you remember in, in Revelation chapter 4? This heavenly scene, as, as they're picturing the one seat on the throne, there's a rainbow over him. Well, there's a rainbow here. In Revelation chapter 1, when John got this vision of Jesus, his face shone bright like the sun. Well, right here, his face was like the sun. And in Revelation chapter 1, his feet were like burnished bronze. Here, his legs are like pillars of fire. So you can see why somebody would look at this and say, well, this must be Jesus. It makes sense. It would be fair. Perhaps it is. I lean towards saying it's not. I lean towards saying this is just an angel. Here's why. First... He's called an angel. Now, let's not be too simplistic and say, well, that's all you had to say. He's called an angel, right? Because there is a reference in the Old Testament, isn't it, to this angel of the Lord? When you read that in the Old Testament, it doesn't sound like it's just an angel, does it? it sounds like it's God the Son. But nonetheless, here he's called an angel. And in the book of Revelation, I don't think Jesus is ever referred to as an angel. 
So, I don't think it's Jesus, number one, for that reason. Two, he says another mighty angel. As I said, I think that's referencing the first one back in 5.2. So, to compare him, it seems to suggest this is an angel in the same way that that was an angel back in 5.2. So, so why would you say another mighty angel if this is utterly different from any other angel that's ever existed? Probably the clincher for why I think this isn't Jesus but just an angel is because of verse 6. In verse 6 of our text, we're told that this angel takes an oath. We're, we're seeing that, the, you see there in verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore. This is the same kind of scene we mimic in our courtrooms, isn't it? He's standing there raising his right hand, he's swearing, and notice what it says in verse 6. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven. It seems to suggest that he's swearing by one greater than him. He's swearing by one who created the earth because he didn't. But Jesus did create the world, didn't he? So I think if this were Christ, he wouldn't be swearing by He could perhaps swear by himself. And then finally, the fact that it's an angel, I think, fits the whole scheme of Revelation. Remember what I pointed out in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God gave it to Jesus, who gave it to the angel, who gave it to John. In Revelation chapter 4, God's holding the scroll. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus takes the scroll. In Revelation chapter 10, now an angel has a scroll. The fact that it says little scroll, I, I don't think is necessarily differentiating. I think they're probably the same scroll. Um, I could go into many arguments for that, but I won't. I, I just think it is. Um, so here now you have the angel holding the scroll. And by the end, verse 10, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel. So I think this works out according to the paradigm. God gave it to Jesus, who gave it to the angel, who gave it to John. So here then is a mighty angel. He's doing something weird. According to verses, uh, verse 2, he had a little scroll in his hand. As I said, I think it's the same scroll from Revelation 5. He said his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And we don't hear a lot of lions around here. When Tom and I were in Africa, we were on a safari and we saw lions and they were close to us and we were intrigued and terrified all at once and uh, the, the, the guy said to us uh, talking about lions roaring he said sometimes a lion will roar even as he's chasing even as he's sneaking up on his prey it's kind of silly right like he's sneaking up and all of a sudden he just lets out a roar and they run off and he said why would they do that you got to get an answer for us. You know, why, why would they do that? I mean, it doesn't work for them. And I said, well, maybe there's a, you know, another agenda. The two wills of the lion, you know. And, um, and, and, and so, yeah, but he said, that's it, right? There, there is another agenda. Sometimes he wants to catch his prey. Sometimes he just wants to send the message, this is my territory. So I began thinking to myself, well, if that works, you would have to hear it from a pretty long distance. So just out of curiosity, I said, how far can you hear a lion's roar? And he said, 10 kilometers, which I think is about 6.2 miles. It's amazing, isn't it? So when this text says he has his right foot, make sure I get this right, his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, he's calling out with a voice like a lion roaring. We're not supposed to think this is a small sound. I think the angel, the reason he's described in such majestic character is because we're supposed to know this angel comes from the very throne of God. 
Sometimes you find characteristics of, among angels, characteristics of God, them being described like that, because I think we're supposed to know they're coming from the very throne of God. So this angel coming from the very throne of God, wrapped in the very garb of things that, that show us God, is now showing that God's sovereign over all the earth. He's got one foot in the sea, he's got one foot in the land, and he's roaring like a lion to say, this is my territory, all of it. And John sees then this interesting scene, but when the lion, or when, when the angel then calls out with this loud voice like a lion roaring, John says something interesting at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but a voice from heaven say, said, seal up the seven thunders, uh, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now that to me is very odd. It's not odd that there's seven thunders and that the seven thunders represent something. And we've already seen seven seals representing something, seven thunders representing something, seven, or seven trumpets, seven thunders. That's not odd. What's odd is that John, who's been charged to write down everything so that he sees the seven seals, he's writing down the content. Sees the seven trumpets, writing down the content. Now he sees seven thunders, he goes to write it down and he's told not to. Not only is it odd to me that he is told not to, but that he tells us that he's told not to. Let me explain to you why I think that's so odd. Imagine this morning that I said something really silly. That's not hard, probably. Um, maybe I said the word "murning" or something like that, right? No, no I'm kidding. Tom, that's for you, brother. Um, but, but imagine I, I, I said something really silly, and I thought to myself, you know, I'd rather that not be on the video that goes up on the internet. So I, I, in the middle of the sermon, let's say, I say something silly, and then I have a conversation like this. Back with the sound booth over you, and I say something like, hey, uh, you know, Dan, would you make sure that you edit that out of the video before you put it up? He says, sure. I go right back to preaching. And so let's say then Monday morning, I'm deciding to myself, I'm going to look at the sermon video and see how that worked, to see if the editing worked out. And, and sure enough, I'm listening to the video. When it gets to the part that I said something silly, that's cut out. But what's included is me saying to Dan, hey, Dan, edit that out. And okay, right? We go, Dan, come on. Everybody knows. You, if something's told not to, you don't have also include the conversation, right? You include the conversation. You move it out. So I would think the same thing here. If John's told, no, 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 don't write that down. And John's like, well, I better write down that he told me not to write it down. Well, no, John. Like, why, why in the world would you do that? This is weird. This is crazy, right? So then I think the only logical assumption is God wanted us to know that John saw something and we weren't supposed to know what it was. Why? Why would God want us to know that? I mean, we can look at this, this, the seven seals that showed us that though there's suffering in this age, God's preserving His people, or the seven trumpets that there's suffering in this age and the judgment of God. Perhaps the th seven thunders are giving us even more insight. I mean, how nice would this be? I mean, when tragedies happen, we can say, you know what, sometimes God's doing this, and sometimes God's doing that. If the seven thunders showed us something else, we can say, and sometimes God's doing this other thing. I think it's because God wants us to know. He wants us to know. He actually wants to send a message to us. There's more that I'm doing. There are more schemes that I have in my plans that you are never going to know about. That is, He wants us to know that all truths haven't been disclosed to us. And that's okay. And that's okay. 
As we go forth as Christ's faithful witnesses into this world, because we claim to be witnesses of the very one who created and redeemed the world, we're going to be in the position where people are going to want to ask us questions, aren't they? I mean, think about it. If there's, if there's a building that collapses and falls on, you know, 100 people and kills them, almost every talk show says, let's get a Christian and ask him, why would God do that? Right? Why would God let that happen? They want, they want to put us on the spot, don't they? And this happens again and again and again. I mean, after 9-11, there were all kinds of shows about this, weren't there? And when we're asked about tragedies, when we're asked about the things that, that, that fill this age, things that we've already been told are going to take place, wars and civil unrest and bloodshed and pestilence and famine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there are going to be times that we can give a general answer, like we've seen. We can say, you know, one thing I can know is that when we face tragedy, no matter how great it is, that God's reminding us that he preserves his people, no matter what comes. No matter what faces us, even, even death will not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we can say, well, this tragedy reminds us that God's judging the world, that we live in a world that's cursed, that we, we live in a world where men are given over to their sins. That, that we answer that because we saw the seven trumpets, right? But there are going to be other times, perhaps a, num perhaps a number of times, when we simply say, I don't no. Right? When people say, why did God allow that to happen here? Because he didn't allow it to happen over there. He stopped it in this incident, but he didn't stop it here. Why would God do that? Why would God allow that? Why would God fill this age with these things or let this specific event happen? And sometimes our answer is going to be, I don't know. He hasn't told me. And that's okay. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to know, I have purposes and plans. I've told you some of them through the seven seals and the seven trumpets, but I have others and you're not going to know them. And that's okay. Through this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so one of the things that, that the Lord's telling John, who's no doubt his mind is filled and he's eager to be able to go back and give all of these answers to, to the churches so that they'll be fully equipped. And one of the answers we're given is we don't know everything and that's okay. So the first thing we need to know is we are God's faithful witnesses in this world that's filled with sin and, 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 and judgment. We need to know that all truths haven't been disclosed to us, and that's okay. But there's something else John's shown, and something else we're shown as well, and it's something that we can be sure of. We can declare the certainty of coming judgment and salvation. If the point of verses 1 through 4 is that there are truths that haven't been disclosed to us, that there is some, some, some doubt, questions we don't know the answers to, I think the point of verses 5 through 7 is to show us that there is something that's certain. There's something we can know, something we can declare. We can declare the certainty of coming judgment and salvation. This angel, John picks up then with in verse 5 again, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. So, so as I said before, this is mimicking a courtroom scene, right? He's standing, he's raised his right hand. If you ever thought, wow, why do I raise my right hand when I take an oath? Probably because Revelation 10. And he swears that there would be no more delay. 
But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, the way that it's worked on these first number, couple of series is there were seven seals on the scroll. You remember that? But when he opened the first six, they unfolded. Number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. Then there was a delay. And we didn't get number seven until the beginning of chapter eight, a whole chapter later. Well, the same things happened with the trumpets. In chapters eight and nine, there was the unfolding of the trumpets. One, two, three, four, five, six. But then there's a delay. And the seventh one is not going to happen until the text we look at next week, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. But the first six trumpets have shown during this age, God is showing his judgment. He's showing his judgment through the tragedies of, of living in this cursed world. He's showing his judgment um, by giving unbelievers over to their sin. But if you're thinking, well, then instead of God bringing an end to all things on some day when he finally judges the wicked men and saves his people, he's just going to keep delaying. And like judgment, you know, lived out this way is just going to continue on forever so that the world just goes on, world without end, and there's never a day of judgment. This angel here in chapter 10 of Revelation says that's not the case. He swears there's going to be a day when there will be no more delay. When the seventh trumpet blows, that's it. The mystery of God, the promises and the plans and the purposes he had that he spoke to the prophets that were unclear, that we didn't all understand exactly how his plans were going to work out until Jesus Christ came onto the scene. And then we saw that God's going to finally judge his enemies and he's going to finally save his people. The angel here in Revelation 10 says, he, on behalf of God, is swearing when that seventh trumpet blows, no more delay. What this means is, is he's sending the message to John, though it feels like the Lord's return is dragging on, though it feels like it's taking forever for Jesus Christ to return and finally judge the wicked and finally save his people, don't be deceived. The delay won't go on forever. There's going to be a day of certainty. And so when we go out into the world... And the world bombards us with questions, sometimes about the purposes and the plans of God, and sometimes we have to say, I don't know. I don't know. I can, I can tell you a number of things, but ultimately, I don't know why God would allow these things to happen. I don't have answers. We walk by faith, not by sight. But we can always say, but there's something I do know for certain. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will return. There's coming a day when there will be no more delay. And He's going to come back, and He's going to judge the wicked, and He's going to judge the righteous. And the wicked are going to be cast into a lake of fire to suffer eternal punishment forever. And the righteous are, are going to be welcomed into paradise with Jesus Christ to live eternity with Him forever. I know that day is certain. So instead of speculating, instead of pressing me perhaps on things I don't know, things God hasn't revealed, what He has revealed is this certain day is coming. And so when we go out as God's faithful witnesses, we, we can declare the certainty of God's coming judgment and salvation. So this chapter begins with something we don't know. He's not disclosed all truth to us. Something we do know, the certainty of coming judgment and salvation. But this chapter, I think, is also very realistic about our task. In verses 8 through 10, we see that we will speak a message that tastes both bitter and sweet. It tastes both sweet and bitter. As we consider being God's faithful witnesses, some things we don't know. We know the certainty of judgment. But also, this chapter reminds us that the message we go out into the world with, 
There's a sweetness to it and there's a bitterness to it. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now before describing this text, I want to show you that this is picking up on something that came earlier in the Bible. Look at the book of Ezekiel. This is kind of ironic, isn't it? And the Lord's providence, I put off Ezekiel forever, right before Revelation, and it ended up being very helpful for us understanding Revelation. But in Ezekiel chapter 2, we see the calling of Ezekiel, and one of the things the Lord is showing Ezekiel is that he must go forth and speak his message. And you know the way the Lord shows Ezekiel that? Is he takes his word and he pictures it as a scroll written on both sides, and he tells Ezekiel, eat it. And the idea is that Ezekiel, who's eating God's words of judgment and God's words of salvation, he's ingesting it, and the message is, Ezekiel, I want you to put it in your mouth because it's what you're supposed to come, what you're supposed to speak, what's supposed to come out of your mouth. So look at Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8. But you, son of man, this is the Lord speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, Hear what I say to you, be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Now keep that in mind. The message Ezekiel is to speak, the words written on the scroll, words of lamentation and mourning and woe. That is, this is words of judgment, isn't it? Chapter 3, verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So you see how it works? Eat it and then speak it. Verse 2. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat, and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with a scroll, and I will give you that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, what's interesting here is Ezekiel testifies to the same reality. He has a scroll, he eats it, in his mouth it's sweet as honey. But you know what then happens? Ezekiel then is taken out of this vision, and he's sitting with his people, and he sits silent among them, overwhelmed in bitterness for seven days. Why? How, how does this work? Well, again, the scroll representing God's word, take it and eat it because you're supposed to speak it. It's sweet in his mouth, I think, because Ezekiel is privileged to speak the word of God. What a blessing to be the spokesman for God. What sweetness. And yet the reason it's bitter and the reason Ezekiel sits in silence among his people in bitterness for an entire week is because what he's going to speak to them are words of lamentation and mourning and woe. 
You see, what, and I think the same message is being said to John here. The reason he takes the scroll and it's sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach, is because John has the privilege of being God's very spokesman. We have that same privilege. We get to go forth and as we, as we share with people God's word, we get to say, here's what God says about that. Here's good news from God about that. What a sweet role. We are ambassadors for Christ. What a, what a blessing we have. We've been commissioned to go out into all the world authorized by Jesus Christ himself. What a sweetness. But John's also reminded that there is a bit of bitterness to this, isn't there? We go out into the world. We go even to people who profess Christ. And sometimes we have to say to them things that are hard to hear. I don't know that anyone has a neighbor move in next door and says, I just can't wait to go over there and let them know that unless they repent of their sins, they're going to be thrown into eternal lake of fire. Can't wait till the game gets over. Got to get over there and tell them. My uncle, who doesn't know the Lord, I saw him much when I was younger, and, and I've only seen him just a couple of times as an adult and then those couple of times, just, just for a short amount of time and, and, and family reunion settings and stuff like that. But one time, uh, my uncle, whom I, I really have a heart for, I want to see him come to know the Lord, he told my mom something that my mom shared with me that was just crushing. Here's what he said. What he related to my mom, then my mom related to me, was he said, you know what? I really like Lee. Now, that part's not crushing. Um, he said, I really like Lee. Here's why I like him. Because I know he's a preacher. And yet, the few times that we've been around each other, he hasn't brought the Bible out to me and pounded me with it. Now, again, part of me is just crushed because I wish I had of. Part of me says, well, we've only been around each other on a couple of occasions, you know. I mean, maybe I should have been more bold, you know, maybe whatever. But I'll tell you what it does. It doesn't make me say, I can't wait to see him again and speak the gospel to him. Because you know what's bitter? I know how that could very well end with him saying to me, I don't want to be around you anymore, boy. I know that. Al Mohler shared one time that he was going on a a talk show. I think it was like Larry King Live or something like this. And, and, and he was meeting him and, and another guy. They were going on with these two um, uh, Jews. Not Messianic Jews, just Jews. So they deny Jesus Christ. And, and they have these earpieces in. I think I've shared this story on an occasion. But they have these earpieces in. And, and the way it's supposed to work is in the show, just to make sure you're hearing what all the other panelists are saying. Then as they speak, you hear it in your, in your ear mic here. But usually, they don't turn that on until the show starts. But on this occasion, it turned on early. And so they're behind the scenes. And, 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 and Al Moeller can hear this other guy talking. He, he's, he's not even more near him, but he can hear what he's saying. And so he turns around to the guy with him, and he says, I can hear and so he's listening to him, and here's what he says, right before they're getting ready to go on the Larry King Live show. One of the Jews turns to the other and says, is this guy really going to tell us that unless we believe in Jesus Christ, we're going to go to hell? I mean, hell? A place of eternal torment? Is that really what he's going to tell us? And Al said he just started sweating. He got nervous. He just prayed, God, give me strength, give me courage, give me boldness. 
there are a number of times we're going to be in situations where speaking God's Word is sweet because we get the privilege of speaking it. But the message we speak, one of judgment, or one that's hard to hear, or one that's easily to be rejected, or one that will make us people's enemies rather than their friends, in their eyes, is going to feel bitter in our stomach. But, and this is the last point, we must speak God's words even if the words feel bitter in our stomachs. We must speak God's Word even if the words feel bitter in our stomachs. That's the message to John. He ate it. It was sweet in his mouth, but it was bitter in his stomach. And yet, here's what he's told. He's not told, John, I know that feels bitter in your stomach. I'll tell you what. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I, I, I know it's hard for you to stomach. Don't worry about it. Nope. Here's what he's told. Verse 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy. And as I said, this word can be translated against, I think maybe even better. You must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In the book of Revelation, kings are almost always used to be an object, uh, to be to a representative of wicked men. So I think the reason we've heard earlier, there are going to be people redeemed from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The reason here I think this fourfold includes kings is because we're reminded we're going to people who are wicked. John's going to speak. He's going to prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. He is not told, because this is bitter in your stomach, you can be quiet. And it's not worth it for me to try to hold on to a temporal relationship with my uncle and lose him for eternity, is it? And many times you're going to be in these situations where you know God's Word and you know what I have to say. And you know what? It's not always going to be to an unbeliever speaking the gospel. Sometimes it's going to be to other believers who profess faith in Christ, but they don't want to obey the Bible. You know that, don't you? I, I've lived life with you. I know you've been there. Some of you have had to tell your siblings, you can't leave your husband. When everyone around them is saying, look, if they leave their husband, it would be so great. And you feel the bitterness in your stomach. You know it's making you an outcast. Some of you have had to say, listen, to somebody you love, you can't marry an unbeliever if you profess faith in Christ. When everyone around them is saying, are you happy they finally found somebody that treats them well and loves them? And we could go on and on and on, right? Perhaps your sibling is, is not only saying, I have same-sex attraction, I struggle with that temptation, but they dive headlong into homosexuality. And everyone around them, the culture and everything, saying, I'm happy you're finally being true to yourself and you're living out this lifestyle. And you have to stand and say, you can't do that. And that bitter word that causes everybody to turn against you, you wish you didn't have to say it in one sense. In another sense, it's sweet because you always want to speak the word of God. But you've been there. And, and, and what John's reminded of, and what we need to be reminded of, especially as we were reminded that we're to be his uh, speakers, that his faithful witnesses going and, yes, making disciples, but also teaching them to obey every single thing Jesus has commanded. Marriage. The, the perseverance of it. Purity. All of these things. Everything he's commanded. We're supposed to tell it. He acknowledges. The sweetness is that you're my messengers. I know there's bitterness as well. What you feel in your stomach, Jesus is saying, I know it's there. I know it's there. But no matter how bitter it feels in your stomach, remember the sweetness in your mouth. You are God's spokesman. 
You're his ambassadors. Now go and fulfill the Great Commission. Because the sweetest news we get to share with the world, even when we tell them of judgment, even when we tell them to turn from their sins, is we get to say, because if you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to pay for the sins of anyone who will believe in Him, and who was raised on the third day for our justification, if you'll believe in Him, then you can be forgiven of your sins and cleansed and saved for all of eternity. That's a sweet message we get to share. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to hold out that message to you. Encourage you to repent and believe and be forgiven of your sins and saved. If you are a believer this morning, and I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer, if you place your faith in Christ, to profess that in baptism. Jesus has given us a way to make public that we've placed faith in Jesus Christ and turned from our sins. So if you've not been baptized, I want to encourage you to this. If you've professed your faith in Christ, you're a member of a church that preaches the gospel and you're in good standing with that church, would you join us this morning as we come to the table? This morning as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're going to proclaim Jesus' death as our hope, reminding ourselves of the commission we have to go into all the world proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them. So let's take a moment of silence this morning in which you can spend this time reflecting on the word. As you're in this time of silence, the ushers and musicians will come forward and then we'll take together this bread and then take together this cup. So let's take a moment of silence now as we come to the table this morning.